0: What is up, folks? If you're new here and we haven't met yet, one, it's a pleasure. My name is Justin. I make videos and podcasts and all sorts of content here on the internet for us knife-wielding, food-loving, travel-friendly people all interested in improving ourselves in our personal and professional lives. And this piece of content is no different. It also serves as something that I call an intermezzo, which is basically a little bite of an idea between longer episodes of my podcast, The Emulsion. Of course, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I wanted to address a topic that I'm insanely passionate about, and that is how to talk about food, which I cannot emphasize enough is one of the biggest assets I think you can have. And conversely, it can also be one of the biggest weaknesses that you can have as a chef or hospitality professional. I'm going to split this up into three parts. First, I want to talk about why it's important. I don't expect you to care or pay attention to anything I'm about to say if I can't share why it actually matters. Then I want to go into some examples of great food writing or food speaking. I think that provides a really good reference for us all. And then I want to share how we can all improve as a rising tide to kind of raise all the boats, all the while giving some examples of bad practices along the way, because we all know those exist. So to start, here's the problem, whether it's a new chef that you've just hired to work the garnish station or a back server who helps run the food, or maybe it's someone from Eater who just called and wants a rundown about your new menu. They all want to hear about the food, right? And a lot of times, you don't have the resources available to give them that food to taste for themselves. Now, you've got two options. You can either show them a picture, which You might not even have, especially if it's a new dish, or you can talk about it. And this is the core of this entire episode. Educating people about your food is why you talk about it. People can't read your mind, much less your palate, so it's no wonder that it causes problems when you say things like, here, glaze this. That doesn't tell me anything. What about here? Steam this broccoli in a light layer of water in a saute pan with a lid on it and a hefty pinch of salt. Then, once the water's almost evaporated, turn the heat down and add this cold cubed butter and swirl it until it emulsifies then grate some lemon zest in at the end and season it with rice wine vinegar to balance out the fat. That is so much more helpful than here. Glaze this. I've said it before and I will say it again. We all need to stop using the word nice when it comes to describing food. I'm guilty of it too in the past, but I've certainly been actively attempting to reduce how much I say nice when I'm describing food. Nice, at least in my opinion, just means how you personally think it should be done. And if you don't believe me, insert the opposite adjective into your sentence and see if it still works. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Here's a quote by the late Jonathan Gold from one of his reviews about a Bon mi spot. Quote, the crisp yet soft texture of a decent Parisian baguette the interplay between the herbs the chilies the variously textured meats and most importantly the essential schmear of liver pate whose organy funk binds the sandwich together into a complex multi-tiered unit of Vietnamese pork whose greatness both exalts and transcends its humble cheap ingredients end quote I think about that part about the pate that he spoke about a nice cognac scented liver pate and a nice organy funky liver pate can both definitely be delicious but they're very i Different. And it's a horrible crutch that just ends up confusing people when you use nice to describe food. I grew up in the Midwest of the US where my grandmother loved popping open jars of bread and butter pickles, which to her are nice and sweet and crunchy. To me, they're an abomination. And I frequently use the least amount of sugar in my pickles because I like mine nice and sour. Am I making sense? Don't take my word for it though. Try it yourself. Refrain from using the word nice when you describe food, insert other adjectives, and see what happens when you're forced to elaborate. And, add different descriptors. And, uh, apologies in advance to Chef Daniel whom. And this, of course, goes beyond training chefs, because once the kitchen is on the same page, hey, maybe you work front of house. It's arguably even more important for you to know how to talk about food. If you work front of house, by the way, and you've been lurking on the channel, please say hey in the comments. I know a lot of chefs like to rag on front of house folks, but I know how important you are. And I shouldn't have to say it, but this is a safe space, and we need you just as much as you need us. So I'd love for us to get in a dialogue in the comments, or if you're listening to this as a podcast— please hit me up on Twitter. I referenced it in my This Place Called Quaintrell video. The woman who had my table was incredible because I'm the kind of person who can pretty much decide what I want to order on my own when I'm looking at a menu. But as a guest, I always like to ask the server, whoever has my table, what they would like to order. Or also, I, I, I like to ask the question, what would you tell your family to order if they came to eat here? I can't even articulate how drastically different it is to get a breakdown of a dish from a knowledgeable server. When done correctly, it's essentially a guaranteed sale, right? When it comes to things like upcharges, highlighting new dishes, front of house is the strongest marketing force available because they're hands on with the guests, they're right in front of them, they're having that conversation. And it's really important that as a chef, the one creating the new product that you're if you're able to effectively communicate with them. And this is really really important. Say for example, you're educating someone on this new dish you just made and you're talking about a lobster tail brushed in a togarashi bermante. Don't take up that person's mental capacity by making sure that they know how to make a Bermonté technique-wise. When is that valuable, is my question. Unless you're planning on throwing that back server on the line at 8.30 p.m. on a Friday night, who cares if they know how to make a butter sauce or not? How about what does togarashi taste like? How do they know what it looks like on a plate? What are the ingredients involved so that they know how to navigate the menu when the guy on table 14 says he has a lactose allergy, right? And in no way, shape, or form am I saying dumb it down in any capacity, but make sure you have some empathy for the guest. What kinds of questions might they ask? actually ask and then make sure that the people that you put in place to communicate with the guest are set up for success. And listen, don't get it twisted. I always want to be cognizant of the fact that every single chef is different. Some people like the spotlight being out in the dining room talking about their food. Other people love the kitchen so much because it allows the opportunity to create without being in front of the audience. And that's the primary reason why front of house staffs exist. But don't be the person who doesn't give a good description of the dish and then also doesn't let the staff taste more than just one bite of the finished dish and then get upset when they can't describe it to a guest. you feel me? I promised I would touch on the press as well, I would like to think that between you as a chef being able to talk about food, combined with the front of house staff being equally skilled, the media will then in turn talk about your food positively and accurately as well. So it all kind of goes hand in hand, but that, that's maybe another intermezzo episode, but let's go into uh, some examples of great food writing. There was this article written by sfgate.com about Chez Panisse and their fruit bowl that they serve there, and how they age the in-season fruit to perfection. Yeah, I know some of you are rolling your eyes, but still stick with me here. The author of the piece, Ali Buzar has this line that's pretty incredible quote, pears that stubbornly clung to a few too many starchy granules finally yield to custardy submission when poached in wine or syrup. The zests of cosmetically imperfect lemons, grapefruits mandarins and oranges find crystalline immortality when carefully removed and candied. Overripe dates and persimmons which contain the cellular machinery to produce enough sugar to candy themselves collapse into complex molasses that form the bases of more complex desserts. And in no way am I suggesting that any of us turn into a caricature of the server wearing the vest with the three foot long peppermint, right? But when's the last time you talked about a persimmon collapsing into a complex molasses? Here's another great example from my friend, Bonjuang, quote, among my favorite dishes were the soy lacquered lamb ribs, which he served on the crumpled parchment paper in which the ribs have been held after grilling, coated in all the lamb's flavorful fat and juices. There was also a terrific black cod head that had been coated with miso and lemongrass and roasted until it became a skull of gelatin. This was butterflied and served for two end quote. And then going on to another example, quote, these Christmas marshmallows were fragrant with winter spices, orange cinnamon and local spice bush. The sugar content was so high and the grill fire was so hot that the marshmallows developed a beautiful, crisp sugar crust quickly. Just the fact that you can literally picture what these people are talking about when you read their writing leads me to my four pillars that I've decided make up good food writing. And you can take these for what you will. The first one being description, the second pillar, reference, the third, embellishment, and the fourth, opinion. I think about the late Anthony Bourdain and how he was able to talk about food that he probably encountered for the first time, especially on some of his travels, and how he was able to write about it in a really thoughtful way. And so much of that comes from utilizing these four pillars, or at least like his own combination of them. And I think your ability to improve yourself in those four areas can ultimately help in the macro by making you better at talking about food. So let's go with an example here that most of us have a reference point for. If you don't have the have this reference point, go ahead and do your best to follow along. I could personally talk about something like steamed basmati rice. That is semi-descriptive, right? That's the first pillar. It says what it is, rice, the variety, basmati, and how it was prepared, steamed, right? What happens if we add another pillar to that reference and we talk about basmati rice steamed to fluffy aromatic perfection? Most of us can get that reference, right? Perfection meaning not too crunchy, not disintegrated, aromatic because most of us that have had basmati rice know that it. It has this kind of distinct floral and perfumey nose. And then, of course, fluffy, meaning that all the kernels aren't stuck together. Most of us know what that means. Let's add another layer on top of it. Let's embellish it a little. A billowing pilaf of basmati rice started in rendered chicken schmaltz and ginger steamed to fluffy aromatic perfection. And to top it all off, lastly, let's add the opinion piece. Maybe that's in there already with the perfection part, but what if we say a generous portion of basmati rice started in their amazing rendered chicken schmaltz with ginger and steamed to a fluffy aromatic base for the saucy chicken. And if you miss that, the opinion piece was kind of adding the words like generous and amazing or stellar or any of these ones where it, it, it's not describing the technique or the way that you perceived it. It's it's more of a subjective uh, adjective that you add. And I wish I could say I made that that dish up. That is actually from a place here in Seattle called Stateside, and I see it on the menu every single time I go there as ginger rice, and I never want to order it. I don't think I need it, and then a server always comes up and describes it to me in a roundabout way very similar. They they do, do cook it in chicken fat, and it's steamed with a little bit of ginger, and it's really aromatic, and it's fluffy, and it goes great with what whatever else I decided to order on the menu, and because they say it in that super romanticized way, and it sounds so freaking good, I order it every single time, and again, I know you don't have a lot of time. I'm not saying you should stop whatever you're doing and go back and pursue your liberal arts degree in food writing, but seriously, challenge yourself. Try it. Take a dish from your station, something that you're prepping on the daily, or maybe you're writing your own menus at this point in your career. Take a dish from there. Write what it says on the menu and then slowly start to add things. Don't use the word nice. Try and sell it. With so many restaurants nowadays having chefs run the food and present it, you could really catapult ahead of your peers if you're able to make sure that the guests have a memorable experience with you when you present the dish and you describe the food. And this is coming from experience. I know I had a ton of trouble with it. Before I got to Norway, all my jobs as a chef de partie were really, really heads down in the kitchen. I never went into the dining room. We didn't have an open kitchen. So I had this insane learning curve of figuring out how to sell the food that I was cooking or the dishes that I was creating when I became a sous chef. Like I said, take it from experience. You at least want to have a glimmer of confidence when chef asks you to go bring course number six on the tasting menu to the New York Times on table 10 mm <laughs> true story I also promised I would touch on some bad practices a bit and this is one that I feel has some weight but really caused a lot of harm the set slash menu slash descriptions right we've all seen them it's been around for a while but the first time I personally saw it gain popularity at least in the kind of one ingredient descriptors for dishes was the kind of pre-3-star 11 Madison park if if those of you were around and you remember their menu was this kind of grid of different ingredient names you would basically pick one from each row and that would eventually make its way into your own custom tasting menu. And part of the reason behind it was that they didn't want to generate any expectations. And if that sounds kind of confusing, see, the problem with saying tender butter lettuce salad with creamy black pepper ranch is that most people have had butter lettuce. Most people have had ranch dressing. So by them requesting to order that salad, whether they admit it or not, they're putting whatever their reference point is for a black pepper ranch dressed butter lettuce salad in your hands as a chef. And you've basically got three options at that point. You can satisfy those expectations that they've come into it with. You can exceed their expectations or you can disappoint them. And I 100% understand why just putting the word carrot on a menu causes way less friction and so much more room for that wow factor, the opportunity to exceed their expectations. Because if they just order a dish called carrot, they're like, hmm, I wonder what it could be. And if you really blow them out of the water with whether serving a carrot that looks like a carrot, but it's not a carrot kind of thing, you basically take out one of those options. But in my opinion, doing things like that cause a problem in the macro. In the same way that a lot of my generation is called the participation trophy generation, the millennials, these safety measures can often cause people to get soft. And I fear that a lot of chefs don't know how to talk about food anymore because we had this era where it was cool to put a squab slash cherry slash buckwheat slash sorrel as a dish descriptor on a menu. And then if you're a chef de partie at one of these fine dining restaurants where this practice was popularized, you get asked to go run the dish to a table and present it. And then you say uh this is squab with cherry buckwheat and sorrel and then you kind of just walk away and then the guests the people who are paying to see your creativity shine they're like cool. What are we eating? And it's such a missed opportunity, right? Because they don't know that you made the cherry into a gastric. They don't know that you roasted the squab over fire. They don't know that you turned the buckwheat into kind of like a play on risotto, right? And of course, so much of this is open to interpretation. I'm not trying to be the end-all be-all about talking about food. Hell, I thought one time I sucked so bad that I started a blog myself called Two Top where I would go out to eat with interesting people as a table of two just so that I could get used to writing down my experiences and going out to eat. And I continue to practice. That's why I keep making the this place called food vlogs. But hopefully through these examples of good and bad and sharing why I think it can really benefit you, you will find your own way of improving your unique voice. Now, before you go, as promised, I want to share a few resources I think can be particularly impactful in growing your skills. Yes, I know it's very, very old school, but MFK Fisher is a legend in food writing for a reason. I really recommend How to Cook a Wolf as a starting place. Go ahead and also check out some other old cookbooks too. Physiology of Taste by Briat Savarin. Uh, The French Laundry Cookbook is, of course, a classic in being able to take certain things and put them in quotes, where you kind of get that reference element while also being able to surprise people. You you call something like a royale in quotes, but it doesn't actually end up being a royale, but you're still pleasantly surprised because you had this expectation of one thing, but it turned out to be another thing. There's so many ways to be creative. We touched on him already, but Anthony Bourdain is an incredible resource. I first knew him through his writing, and it shows so much in his shows on TV where it sounds like he's reading from one of his books. He is insanely good at those embellishment and reference points of my four pillars. His nasty bits book is a really really good place to start. And last up, a blogger that I continue to pimp out here on the channel because he's one of the best people left standing. Ulterior Epicure does some really incredible writing. Take your commute on the train or your cup of coffee on your day off and just read one of his blog posts or two, especially if it's at a restaurant that you've either eaten at or a restaurant that you've worked at in the past because he's really good at showcasing what's really going on because he has so many points of reference. He's eaten all over the world. This episode could have been Okay, I just had to check to make sure it wasn't. This episode could have been 37 minutes long. I'm clearly very passionate about this subject. It's something that I'm continually wanting to improve myself. This topic has serious potential for me. I could make a whole slew of episodes about this topic. So if you have some questions or you want me to go into other exercises or ways that you can improve or other uh, ways that I've been able to uh, progress my way that I talk about food, please leave your questions and thoughts down below. If you're listening to this as an audio-only version, please just tweet at me or send me an Instagram DM. That's always a really good way to get in touch. If any of the resources or articles or books that I talk about have links, you will definitely find those down low in the description here on YouTube or in the info tab of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Go ahead and make sure to get some color on that like button if you're here on YouTube and subscribe wherever you are listening. There's, of course, so much more to be said about listening to feedback when someone else talks about your food, but that is another Intermezzo episode. Thank you so much for your attention and for listening. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.